You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 64, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today we continue our reading of the Hagakure, the Book of the Samurai. Today is chapter 3, it's a short chapter, only about a page in total, page and a half depending on your copy or edition of this book. And it's entitled, Lord Naoshige Once Said. So let's just dive right into it, see where Lord Naoshige takes us. Lord Naoshige once said, There is nothing felt quite so deeply as giri. There are times when someone like a cousin dies, and it is not a matter of shedding tears, but we may hear of someone who lived 50 or 100 years ago, of whom we know nothing and who has no family ties with us whatsoever, and yet, from a sense of giri, shed tears. When Lord Naoshige was passing by a place called Chiriku, someone said to him, In this place there lives a man who is over ninety years old. Since this man is so fortunate, why don't you stop and see him? Naoshige heard this and said, How could anyone be more pitiful than this man? How many of his children and grandchildren do you suppose he has seen fall before his very eyes? Where is the good fortune in that? It seems that he did not stop to see the man. When Lord Naoshige was speaking to his grandson, Lord Motoshige, he said, No matter whether one be of high or low rank, a family line is something that will decline when its time has come. If one tries to keep it from going to ruin at that time, it will have an unsightly finish. If one thinks that the time has come, it is best to let it go down with good grace. Doing so, he may even cause it to be maintained. It is said that Motoshige's younger brother heard this from him. And that is the whole chapter, the whole thought. So where to begin? Well, let's begin with giri. A strange word, I think, to us in the Western Western civilization, the Western world. What is giri? Giri, well, the simple meaning of giri is it means duty or obligation or a sense of responsibility, simply put. But giri at this time, when Tsunotomo is putting this together, He's reflecting again on history. He's reflecting on this lineage of the samurai. And this whole matter of giri then is a part of the samurai ethic of the warrior culture of the ethos of these knights. And so within the context of the samurai, giri, I think uh, the best translation would be to serve one's superiors with a a self-sacrificing devotion. And we talked about this on the last episode. You, you have to serve somebody, especially in the shogunate, in the samurai culture, in this ethos. Because if you're not a samurai, if you don't have a master, well, then you're a ronin, you're a masterless samurai. And even though there's been an entire industry built out of literary and film depictions of the ronin, of the masterless wandering samurai, in fact, last, was it this morning? Yeah, it was actually this morning. I was watching Ichiro and... The, the Blind Samurai, Zatsuitsi, one of my favorite series of movies ever. It went on for decades, actually. 
but it is, again, it is um, Zatsoichi, Z-A-T-O-I-C-H-I, Zatsoichi, The Blind Swordsman. I love the series. Great sword fighting, great dramatic movies. They're fantastic. I love them. But in the Shogunate, in samurai society, in this society, when Tsunantomo is writing this, reflecting on the history of the samurai, Giri and this sense of responsibility to one's superiors, this self-sacrificing devotion, rises to the level of a moral obligation. It's not just a sense of duty, not just a sense of responsibility. It's like if someone does something kind for me and I have a sense of responsibility that I need to say thank you or respond in kind to repay them for their kindness to me. That's probably the lowest tier of giri. Moral obligation in the sense of self-sacrificial devotion to one's master, that is the aim, that's the goal of the samurai. So as Naoshige says, there's nothing felt quite so deeply as giri, the sense of self-sacrificing, this moral obligation to sacrifice one's own life for his master. And then the question becomes, well, who is your master? Who do you serve? And who do you serve that this giri isn't even open to debate? Is it your spouse or partner? Is it your children? Is it your comrade in arms? Is it your brother or sister to your left and to your right? Is it your teammate? Who is it that you serve? in a sense that you elevate them to the level of considering them your superior, but also to the level that you would sacrifice yourself for them. And in fact, you consider it a moral obligation to do so. Because if that's the case within this knighthood, then why are you training all the time? Why do you care about your grooming habits and how you present yourself? Why do you care about conquering fear? Well, it's because in order to serve my superior, to serve my shogun, to serve my master best, I must also be always at my best. And even at a deeper level, my behavior and how I carry myself is a reflection of my master, of the shogun, because I am a representative. I represent, I am a symbol of my master. So if I show up in public and my hair isn't uh, washed or combed, if my beard is scraggly and poking out at different angles, if my clothes are wrinkled, if my sword is, God forbid, dull, then I am a disgrace to my master. Even if my master never sees me, I'm still a disgrace because I have gone out in public as a symbol, as a representative of my master. And I presented myself in such a way that people look at me and wonder, how could his master allow him to go out in public looking like that? Doesn't his master care about the way he looks? And if his master doesn't care about the way that his warriors, his knights look, well, then what does that say for the rest of his court? What does that say about his living quarters? What does that say about the castle? What does that say about the kingdom? That if this master, this shogun, this king, he can't even keep track of one knight, one samurai, if he can't hold this one man to this moral obligation, this giri, well, what does that say then about the rest of us? What does he expect from the rest of us? Does he expect anything? Is he in control at all? Does he have any authority over his own warriors? Giri is no small thing then. 
because it is a reflection back on our master, back on the ones whom we serve. <coughs> Excuse me. So giri in the present tense, reflecting on Tsunetomo, who's reflecting on this lineage of the knight, the samurai. Do we in the present tense, do we practice giri? Do we set as our goal to serve, to sacrifice ourselves for the one that we consider superior, the one that we consider must live at all costs, even at the cost of my own life? Do we have that sense of self-sacrificial morality that the good of the other is more important than my own good? And actually, paradoxically, if I take care of the good of the one who I uh, serve, well, then I'm taking care of myself. It's a strange thing if you think about it, especially since the Enlightenment, that the hyper-individualism that has evolved out of the sovereign self, the individual over the group, the enlightenment principle of the sovereign individual. Capitalism took that and fed it HGH and steroids and all kinds of Mexican vitamins and supplements. Because when you add capitalism, which is functionally greed, when you add that to an individual, to a, a person who thinks that everything is subjective, everything is about my personal tastes, and then you put that on steroids, jack it up and put it on blast. Who's the most important person ever? Well, I am. Who matters more than anybody else? I do. Well, whose good, whose satisfaction, whose pleasure matters most? Mine. So then why do I serve others? Well, because they're commodities, they're products. They're something that I buy into with my time, with my attention, whatever it may be. But why do I have friends? Why do I have coworkers that I go out with for beers after work? Why do I have comrades in arms that I serve shoulder to shoulder to day after day after day, going out on patrol, running into burning buildings, fighting on the front lines? Why do I do any of that? Well, because it gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of meaning. It gives me my identity. These other people, I mean, I care about them. I mean, sure, they're important to me in the sense that they provide something for me. But would I sacrifice my life for them? Not likely. Why? The, I can find new coworkers. I can find new friends. I barely knew him. I mean, I don't even know his phone number. I mean, I like him, but his wife's kind of annoying. Or, yeah, I mean, she's good enough, but I mean, the way that she parents her kids, ugh. I mean, I can't stand to be around her when her kids are with her. We are so hyper-individualized in this society, especially in the United States, that we can't get out of our own way most of the time. We can't get out of our way long enough to recognize that maybe the problem with culture is that. That we're so hyper-individualized and we care so deeply about ourselves. We're so self-involved, so self-centered, so me first, that giri, the sense of obligation, moral obligation, right? That in order to make giri a moral obligation, in order to understand it as a moral obligation, I first have to have morality, which means I first have to ask the question, do I even have a good and evil, you know, compass points? Is it objective or is it personal tastes? Giri raises all of these questions because of that one word moral and that other word obligation. 
What morality? What is good? What is wrong? What is right? Obligation. Who am I obligated to serve? Why am I obligated to serve them? Why does it matter? Why should I sacrifice myself for you? Are you going to sacrifice yourself for me? Would you lay down your life for me? Well, if not, then why would I do it for you? But notice too, then, that a lot of current self-help literature, a lot of the people, life coaches and so forth that you see that put out videos and content, so much of it is looking around you at the people that you've surrounded yourself with and asking, are these people my friends? Are these people that I can depend on? Are these the people that are going to show up for me when the shit gets real? Or am I really all alone in this group? Am I really just a natural resource for these people to exploit and use up? Because we've cared so much about satisfying ourselves that we haven't taken the time to detach and step back and ask, am I surrounding myself with people who are self-centered and is as self-absorbed as me? Because in the end, these relationships aren't going to satisfy me. Because that level of intimacy, that level of unconditional love, that agape love I've talked about before, it's not here. There is no transcendent moral foundation that all of us standing here share in common. We're not really united. It's just kind of a social contract. And we as individuals agree to get along with each other so we can all get what we want from each other. And then we're all going to go home and we're going to feel good about ourselves because we got something. But when the shit gets real, when I fall, when I'm in the ditch, when I need someone to show up at two o'clock in the morning, who do I call? That's the question. Who do you serve? Who have you put at that level? Who have you elevated to that level that you consider that person more important than you? that you consider that person so important that you would sacrifice yourself for them. You would die for them. Because that's what Giri is. And maybe that person, like he says, now Shige says, maybe it's not somebody that's alive or, or recently deceased. Maybe it's not a relative or a family member. Maybe it's someone who died 100 years ago. Maybe it's someone you never met before. But yet, their writing or their speaking or their example, it motivated you. It woke you up. It caused you to say, hey, you know, I've been pretty selfish, actually, for most of my life. I've been pretty selfish, pretty self-centered, actually. I've surrounded myself with people who are self-centered, too. I don't really have deep relationships with people. I don't really have people around me who will sacrifice everything for me, who elevate me, who lift me up and say, you know what? You're worth it. You're more important than me. Your life is more important than my life. So maybe the reason that we're so overwhelmed right now in our society by the chaos, by the bullies. Maybe the reason we allow ourselves to be pushed around, why so many people comply with unjust and immoral orders and mandates from politicians and other authorities is because we don't have a sense of obligation to each other anymore. When we see someone being picked on, we see someone being pushed down, we see someone being beaten up, do we rush to their help or do we take our cameras out and record it so we can post it online? That's not giri. That would be the opposite of giri. That would actually be immoral obligation. And yet, who are our examples? Talked about this when we talked about the death of the modern day warrior. Who are our examples of strength, of courage, of bravery, of strength? 
What is our definition of true wealth and success? Is it defined by our relationships and the people in our lives? Remember, in chapter one of the Hagakure, intelligence is actually measured by the people that you talk with every day about the conversations that you've had. How do we measure knowledge and wisdom? Do we measure it by the quality of the conversation or do we measure it by how much you've read or how many years of school you have, how many diplomas you have hanging on your wall, your ability to use Wikipedia or Google? How do we measure intelligence? It's definitely not by way of how many how many quality conversations have you had lately? We don't really have an objective moral measurement anymore. And I think that's why we're so fragmented because all of us are trying to find good. We're all trying to find the way to what is good and right and fair, but we're all looking at a different roadmap, or at least many of us are looking at different roadmaps. So we're all traveling in different directions, which means we're always traveling away from each other, not toward each other. Then when we meet a bully troll under the bridge, and they jump out and attack us in the street, at home, at work, at church, on the school ground, wherever, no one's going to rush to our help because nobody has a sense of giri. Nobody looks and says, I don't even know who that is, but they're getting attacked by those two or three people. I'm going to jump in and say, do something. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to sacrifice my health and well-being, possibly my life, to save this person from taking a beating or being stabbed or lit on fire or shot or just being harassed. We don't think that way anymore because we're not together. And I think the reason we're not together is because we don't have the same floor to stand on. We don't have the same sense of moral obligation because we haven't even defined what is good and evil anymore. You know, currently it's September 20th, 2020, which by the way, the Simpsons predicted that Donald Trump would die on September 20th, 2020, which is interesting. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former Supreme Court justice died. And I say former because she, she died. And immediately, there was no mourning period. Within literally five, 10 minutes of the news getting out in the public, Democrats and Republicans were already tweeting and posting on social media about the next Supreme Court justice. There was no moratorium. There was no mourning period. There was no, hey, let's just all take a break from campaigning. Let's all take a break from politics and the nastiness of this. Let's just all stop. And whether you agreed with her rulings or not, whether you liked her or not, whether she was a hero or a villain, she's dead. And she served this country on the Supreme Court for decades. And let's just recognize that. Let's just take a moment and recognize that and just mourn. As a country, let's mourn. Nope, we can't do it. We can't. Too much at stake. Too much at stake. Meaning, power's at stake. And there's too many people that want it. And there's too many people who want to take it away. From the street level, all the way up to the halls of Congress, even to the White House. And so our leaders have no sense of giri, other than to themselves and their accumulation of power. And therefore, they model that. And we see it modeled by academics. We see it modeled by celebrities and professional athletes. Everyone models hyper-individualism, hyper-selfishness, not giri, not a moral obligation to serve one's superiors with a self-sacrificing devotion. They expect us to sacrifice ourselves for them. But then when asked to sacrifice for us, there's always equivocation. There's always self-justification. There's always deflection. 
there's a racial war going on in the streets of our country right now. And there doesn't need to be. If we united, we could work this out. If we united, we'd be able to turn around and look at those who are crying systemic racism, look at those who are saying, you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're transphobic, you're Islamophobic, you're this, you're that, and realize the people making the most noise, pointing the fingers, are the people who are instigating the racial war. And that if we actually held accountable those who are responsible for representing us as voters, who are actually legislators, who are charged with actually doing stuff to benefit society, we would recognize they're the ones starting everything. They're the ones pointing the finger and getting us to go at each other, to be at each other's throat, so that we don't notice that for all of their talk about reform, all of their talk about inequality and oppression and police brutality and everything else, they don't do anything to change the system. They cry systemic racism, and yet they've been in the system for 40, 50, 60 years. They're the ones who created the system. They perpetuate it. Why don't we hold them accountable? Why don't we burn down the governor's mansion? Why don't we storm City Hall? Why don't we storm the Congress and legislature of our states and the Capitol in Washington, D.C.? Because we're divided. We're cut up into pieces, fragmented, and therefore we can't stop long enough to all turn around collectively and say, wait a minute, we've been bamboozled again. We're not, we're not responsible for this. If you come and burn down my church, that's not going to change police brutality. That's not going to save black lives. If you burn down a black man's business and you're a white person, you're not fighting racism. You're a racist. You're actually doing what the Klan's done for decades. If you're attacking your neighbor in the street because they don't vote the way that you vote, they win. They win. Because rather than recognize that no politician can save us, no politician is our savior, local, state, or federal. They can't save us. They don't want to save us. They don't care about us. That's the game. But we keep voting for them. So therefore, they keep gathering and collecting power for themselves. They keep lying to us. They keep distracting us. They keep feeding us bread and circuses. And we just accept it because we're addicted to the heroin of social media and regular media. We want that shot of oral pleasure, audio, auditory pleasure, visual pleasure. Netflix and chill. Why don't we have a sense of giri? Why don't we embrace it? Why don't we bring it back? Because we don't want to. Because as long as my needs are met, as long as I get what I want, I don't care about anybody else. And that's to the point of Naoshige. That's when you get to the point where you ask, should this family line continue? If it's in decline, maybe it's time has come. Maybe whatever happened in the United States in the 20th century has come to an end. And maybe it's best to let it go down with good grace. But you'll notice all of these institutions fighting all the time to survive. Corporate mainstream media died a couple decades ago. And with the rise of smartphones and the internet and social media, we had citizen journalists. We didn't need to depend on the media anymore. We had Twitter. 
We didn't need to depend on the mainstream media to tell us the truth. We had our cell phones. We could share images online instantly around the world. If there's a revolution in the streets of Cairo in Egypt, I don't need CNN to tell me what's happening. I can just go online and find someone who's on the streets of Cairo with their camera out filming. During the Minneapolis riots, I didn't watch CBS, ABC, or NBC because they're spinning up a narrative. I just went on Facebook and watched live streams of it from people's phones. We don't need the corporate mainstream media anymore because we know what they do. They just spout propaganda. Whatever their producers tell them in their earpiece to say, that's what they say. And their producers are directed by a president or a board of directors. This is the narrative. This is the truth as we see it. This is the way it's going to be. That's why you have fact checkers now on social media. Fact checkers is just another name for thought police. That's all they are. Do they check the facts? No, the facts change. Just go and look at CDC you know, suggestions and guidelines. They change all the time. So then the fact checkers change all the time. Why do we listen to the fact checkers? We don't, because we know better. We're informed. We know what the game is. We're savvy. And so what do we do? Do we rise up? Do we all sign off and deactivate our social media accounts? Of course we don't, because we're addicted to them. Social media is a drug. It's our drug of choice. If it's free, why can't we give it up? When I was at rock bottom, I said what every addict says at some point, I can quit whenever I want. I just don't want to. Yeah, that's what addicts say because they don't want to admit the truth to themselves that they can't quit that they're superior, that the one that they're sacrificing their lives to is a drug to the bottle. And now we see what the power of social media and how it essentially rewires our brain, how it rewires our sense of community and conversation and debate and argument. Keyboard warriors, we all know them. Maybe at different points in time, we are them. We become them. But we don't have a sense of interpersonal community like we used to. We don't have a sense of moral obligation to each other like we used to. Instead, we post black boxes or we stay off social media for the weekend to protest this or that cause. But we don't do anything. We just do it to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Because we have no sense of giri. That's what keyboard warriors are. They talk tough. They post memes and images that make them look tough, make them look strong, make them look like warriors or whatever. But you know, as, as Andy Stump says on the Cleared Hot podcast, if you post something online, ask yourself, if I was stuck in an elevator with this person, would I say this to their face? And if the answer is no, hit delete. That's why, again, don't, don't lie to yourself about who you are. Figure out who you are for real. So that when you are on social media, as best you can, you can be the same person. So that when people meet you, when they run into you on the street or at church or at work or at home, in your neighborhood, wherever it might be, the person they see on social media is the person they meet without filters. (laughs) But maybe if we try to keep this thing called the United States going the way that it was run in the 20th century, well, that's why it's so unsightly now. That's why it's so chaotic and apocalyptic. 
That's why everyone is struggling for a piece of the pie. Everyone's struggling to maintain power. It's like watching The Godfather 1 and 2. It's like crime families fighting for turf. The Bush, Clinton, Obama crime family versus the Trump crime family. And we're all, we're just the street vendors caught in the middle looking around going, what's going on? Why are there bullets flying? We're collateral damage. Because our leaders have no sense of moral obligation to us because we allowed them to escape that obligation, in my opinion. We have a warrior class in this country, but we didn't, we honored them, we revered them, maybe even feared them, but we didn't hold them to a higher standard. We allowed those people, again, who have no sense of moral obligation to set the rules for them, to set the training protocols, to fund them or defund them. And now to all the law enforcement officers, we failed you. We, the citizens, failed you. You didn't fail us. We failed you. We voted for these politicians. We did nothing. We didn't push back when we should have and said, hey, you can't do that. Change. Or we didn't support you when you needed our support. Same thing for first responders. Same thing for firefighters. Same thing for military. We should be the ones apologizing to you and saying, yeah, we didn't live up to our obligation to you. We didn't hold you to a higher set of moral values and accountability. We left that for someone else. And now we're reaping the fruit of that. Same thing with public schools, same thing with the mainstream media, same thing with social media. We always want to look around and blame other people, but we never want to turn the finger toward ourselves. We never want to say, well, it's gotten this bad because we've allowed it to get this bad. We expected the teachers to do our job for us. We expected the politicians to do our job for us. We expected everybody else to do something for us. We basically gave up our moral obligation to each other. We gave that up and we gave it to somebody else and said, here, you take care of this. I don't want to. I'll be over here watching TV. I'll be over here online watching porn. I'll be over here feeding my face with stuff that's going to kill me. We abdicated our moral responsibility to each other. And we gave away those obligations, those duties to people who don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. But that's the thing about power is it attracts the worst and it destroys the best. That's why you've heard it before, I've heard it before, that those who want power are the least deserving of power. And those who reject and run away from power, those are the ones you want having power because you know they're uncomfortable wearing that mantle and they'll get rid of it as quickly as possible. But maybe the United States as a society is like a 90-year-old man that's outlived his own children and even some of his own grandchildren. Maybe it's time for the old man to die so that somebody else can move into his house, take over, clean it up, set everything in order again. Maybe that's what we're experiencing right now. It's not the death of the United States of America, but the beginning of a rebirth, and we're in the birth pangs. Maybe it's our children then that we say, okay, enough, no more. I'm not going to abdicate my moral obligations and responsibilities and allow somebody else to teach my kids, somebody else to raise my kids, somebody else to fill my 
head, my kids' heads with their ideologies and indoctrinate them in things that I disagree with that are immoral, unethical. Maybe it's time for us, Gen Xers in particular, to step up, embrace Giri, and say, fine, if you, if you won't do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to break from the system. I'm going to step out of ranks. Enough is enough. I'm drawing the line. I'm planting my flag on this hill. This is where I'm going to die. For my children, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself for my children. And not just my children in a specific sense, but in a general sense. It's my obligation as a man, as a pastor, as a father, as a fighter. It's my obligation to fight for them. Because if I don't, who will? If you don't, who will? And maybe in this way, like the 300 who stood against the Persians, there's not many of us, but maybe through our sacrifice, we inspire generations to step up and accept responsibility again for what their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents gave away. So maybe for those of us who stand on the bridge or stand up and hold that pass, hold that line, and say, no, I'm not going to give my kids away to be sacrificed to your death cult. I'm not going to allow them to be raised by the TV set. I'm not going to allow them to choose their heroes from these morally bankrupt spiritually void individuals who only care about fame, who only care about how they appear, who only care about the amount of zeros after their paychecks. No, no more. No. (laughs) That's Giri. That's the warrior ethic. No one else will hold the line? Fine, I'll do it myself. Oh, you'd like to join me? Fantastic. Welcome to the fight. If we die, we die in the shade. So, like I said, it's a short chapter. I got a little intense there, but I've been thinking about this of late, especially with all that's going on in our society, politically, all that's going on in other places overseas and all the people that I know in Australia, for example, Germany, South Africa, Sweden, I praise God for the interconnectedness that I enjoy with so many people thanks to the internet and thanks to social media and thanks to my smartphone. But I also think that comes with an obligation that no other generation has known because I do have access to all these people. You have access to me. We can share our thoughts with each other. We can talk to each other. And I think that again, is not a small thing. I think that's a great moral obligation we have to each other to encourage each other. And even if it is just a text, even if it is just an email, even if it is just a quick phone call to say, you're not alone, I'm there too. And we may be a minority, we may be a small number, but we're strong and we're brave and we're going to hold the line and maybe we'll inspire future generations to do likewise. But if we don't do it, who will? So why not? Let's step up and do it. Let's accept the obligation. Let's embrace Giri and 
once more into the breach, as the man said. So that's all I got for today. And as always, I truly appreciate and I'm grateful for all of you who listen. This is the week. I'm going to design those t-shirts. I promise. I promise. Tomorrow, I got to get kicking on stuff. I got a book. I got to start writing. Apparently, I didn't sign the contract, but they put the money in my bank account for the advance. So I got to produce something. Get the t-shirt going. Buying mats this week so that I can start teaching Muay Thai in the next week or two. Hopefully, next week or two. So that's great. So thank you to everybody who listens who's local who approached me and said, hey, you know what? I'd like to learn that from you. Can you teach me? I appreciate that. So it's good to hit the ground running with four or five or 10 students before I even buy mats. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast. Like I said, you go to Anchor FM, you click support. That's what your dollar, your $5, your $10 goes towards. It goes towards the hardware that I use for this uh, podcast. It goes for what I'm starting with the Warrior Priest Gym. It's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. And you're a part of it. And I appreciate you for doing that. So thank you. And we'll talk to you again on Wednesday for the Midweek Debrief. Peace.